Hello and welcome to the August 17th, 2021 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lean, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with highlights of the new material you'll find if you go to annals.org. I hope you, your loved ones, and your colleagues are staying safe as COVID-19 continues to rear its ugly and persistent head in the U.S. and around the globe, despite the availability of vaccines that could have prevented resurgence of the pandemic had sufficient numbers of people had access to and were willing to be vaccinated. First is a pooled cross-sectional study that found that rates of COVID-19 hospitalizations, ICU admissions, and in-hospital deaths between March and December 2020 peaked in December before vaccines became widely available. Among hospitalized patients with COVID-19, use of effective therapeutics increased while implementation of invasive support measures such as mechanical ventilation waned. The clinical epidemiology of COVID-19 among U.S. adults has been well described with older age and underlying conditions identified as risk factors for hospitalization and death. However, data on trends in clinical characteristics and outcomes of COVID-19-associated hospitalizations over time are limited. Researchers from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention used a large geographically diverse population-based surveillance network to describe monthly trends and rates of severe outcomes associated with COVID-19 among U.S. adults during March to December 2020. Among hospitalized patients, they also described monthly trends in the distribution of clinical characteristics, interventions, and outcomes. The researchers found that among the 116,743 adults in the analysis, rates of all hospitalization, ICU admission, and in-hospital death were highest among adults aged 65 years or older who were male and Hispanic or non-Hispanic Black. Among 18,508 sampled hospitalized adults with detailed information, use of remdesivir and systematic corticosteroids increased while use of mechanical ventilation and other intensive interventions decreased and outcomes improved. These findings suggest that clinical practice evolved based on increasing knowledge, experience, and tools to combat COVID-19 during the early days of the pandemic. Incomplete resection of neoplastic polyps is considered an important reason for the development of colorectal cancer. However, there has been a lack of data on the natural history after incomplete polyp removal. On August 10th, Annals published a study that aimed to fill this gap. The study included patients who, between 2009 and 2012, at two academic centers, underwent resection of a 5 to 20 millimeter neoplastic polyp, had documented complete or incomplete resection of a polyp, and underwent surveillance examination. The outcome of interest was segment metachronous neoplasia defined as the proportion of colon segments with at least one neoplastic polyp first surveillance examination. Segment metachronous neoplasia was compared between segments with prior incomplete polyp resection to those with prior complete resection, accounting for clustering of segments within patients. Of 233 participants in the original study, 166, or 71%, had at least one surveillance examination. Medium time to surveillance was shorter after incomplete versus complete resection, The risk of any metachronous neoplasia was greater in segments with incomplete versus complete resection, 52% versus 23%. Incomplete segments also had a greater number of neoplastic polyps and greater risk of advanced neoplasia. Incomplete resection was the strongest independent factor associated with metachronous neoplasia. 
These findings have implications for appropriate follow-up after incomplete polyp removal. A new commentary from authors at University of Oslo, Norway, argues that legal interventions intended to protect public health can and should be guided by scientific evidence, and that embedding evidence generation into public health interventions is possible even during the time of the pandemic. Soon after the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, investigators initiated a surge of clinical trials for drugs and vaccines, which have been enormously valuable and contributed to evidence-based improvements in clinical care and disease prevention. However, public health measures such as social distancing rules, strategies for school openings, quarantine duration, and masking remain largely untested. Instead, they are guided by the precautionary principle, which supports policymakers in adopting precautionary measures when scientific evidence about environmental or health hazard is uncertain, but stakes are high. The authors say that by generating high-quality evidence for interventions and mitigation measures, policymakers will better be able to quantify expected benefits, harms, and burdens, maintain trust and understanding, and preserve democratic processes. Next is a multi-center randomized trial that showed that 20 sessions of acupuncture over eight weeks resulted in greater improvement in symptoms moderate to severe prostatitis chronic pelvic pain syndrome compared with sham therapy. Treatment effects endured over 24 weeks follow-up. Chronic prostatitis chronic pelvic pain syndrome manifests discomfort or pain in the pelvic region for at least three of the previous six months without evidence of infection. Lower urinary tract symptoms, psychological issues, and sexual dysfunction may also be involved. Antibiotics, alpha blockers, and anti-inflammatories are the mainstays of treatment and clinical practice, but they have limited effectiveness and are associated with adverse effects with long-term use. Acupuncture has shown some promise as an alternative treatment, but high-quality evidence has been scarce. Researchers from the China Academy of Chinese Medical Sciences randomly assigned 440 male participants to either eight weeks of acupuncture or sham therapy to assess long-term efficacy of acupuncture for improving chronic prostatitis, chronic pelvic pain syndrome. The treatment was considered effective if participants achieved the clinically important reduction of at least six points from baseline on the National Institutes of Health Chronic Prostatitis Symptom Index at weeks eight and 32. Ascertainment of sustained efficacy required the between group difference to be significantly ascertainment of sustained efficacy required the between group difference to be statistically significant at both time points. The researchers found that compared with the sham acupuncture group, larger proportions of participants in the acupuncture group reported marked or moderate improvements in symptoms at all assessment points. No significant difference was found in changes in the International Index for Erectile Function at all assessment time points or in the peak and average urinary flow rates at week eight. No serious adverse events were reported in either group. According to the researchers, these findings show long-term efficacy of acupuncture and provide high-quality evidence for clinical practice and guideline recommendations. Traditionally, peer-reviewed published randomized clinical trials define the standard of care for treatment. During the COVID-19 pandemic, a more rapid response evolved, and available drugs were repurposed for treatment based on available data and clinical cases. Despite rapidly accumulating evidence on safety and efficacy, far less is known about how treatments have been used in the U.S. and how much use of these therapeutics have varied across patients and health systems. The next article reports a retrospective cohort study that examined trends in the use of therapeutics for COVID-19. 
Researchers from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health studied data for 137,870 hospitalized adults in the National COVID Cohort Collaborative, a retrospective cohort constructed from electronic health record data at 43 health centers to describe temporal trends in the use of three drugs, hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir, and dexamethasone, over a 13-month period beginning in February 2020. They found that brisk uptake and abandonment of hydroxychloroquine early in the pandemic was offset by increases in the use of remdesivir and to an even greater degree, dexamethasone. Despite release of favorable evidence from the recovery trial in mid-June, approximately one-fifth of patients who were mechanically ventilated and potentially eligible for its use did not receive dexamethasone or any other glucocorticoid. Further, substantial variation in dexamethasone use was observed across sites, despite robust evidence supporting the value of dexamethasone in reducing the likelihood of death among persons with COVID-19 who require mechanical ventilation. Authors of an accompanying editorial from Leo Cornell Medical School note that the study authors demonstrated how rapidly clinicians navigated a cacophony of data to incorporate appropriate treatments into practice during an infectious disease pandemic. Clinicians adopted a drug with mortality benefit, dexamethasone, abandoned the drug with no benefit and the potential for harm, hydroxychloroquine, and recognized the nuances of a third drug, remdesivir. They conclude that lessons learned during the pandemic will have lasting implications for clinical practice. Quotation marks, a grammatical device for distinguishing text as the words or thoughts of another person, are ubiquitous in society and medicine. While there are some good reasons to use quotes in patient medical records, the authors of a commentary think there are also problems with such documentation, particularly as patients increasingly access their medical notes. These authors believe that quoting patients may imply skepticism or convey disrespect. They are concerned that the use of quotes differs by patient race and gender. They suggest that this possible contribution to inequity is one reason that clinicians might pause before quoting a patient in a clinical note. Also new is the latest Beyond the Guidelines Grand Round from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Experienced clinicians debate the appropriate management of a 40-year-old man who presented with lethargy, decreased libido, and erectile dysfunction. His serum testosterone was 121 nanograms per deciliter, with a normal reference range of 280 to 800. The written article is accompanied by a video of the Grand Rounds and patient interview, and there's an opportunity to earn CNE and MOC points. This month's In the Clinic Review is an update on low back pain, one of the most common conditions for which adults seek medical care, and unfortunately, a condition that is often over-evaluated and treated with medications that incur more harm than benefit. Also new were several on being a doctor essays, new graphic medicine articles, and the latest Annals for Hospitalists alert. Go to Annals for Hospitalists for key points from articles identified by hospitalists, colleagues, as particularly relevant to the practice of hospital medicine. You'll also find a brief commentary on the treatment of hyperglycemia in the hospital. Finally, you'll find three new Annals on Call podcasts. The topics are COVID-19 vaccine mandates for healthcare workers, the management of COPD, and point-of-care ultrasound to evaluate patients with acute dyspnea. That brings me to the end of this podcast. I hope you'll go to annals.org to take a look at some of the new material that I've mentioned and browse previous articles that you may have missed. Stay safe and come back in two weeks for more Annals Highlights. 
Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.